Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And John, we've talked about Michael Jordan more on Gamble On this year than we might have expected, but we aren't quite done yet. On Wednesday, DraftKings announced that MJ will be a special advisor to the board of directors and has an equity stake in the company. My question for you, John, is this. Do you think FanDuel has called a company meeting yet to instruct everybody not to say anything negative about DraftKings, lest Jordan get the motivation he needs to give the best special advice possible? Uh, yeah, Eric, first I need to do a, do a reveal, I guess. Um, hmm. I'm told that in sports circles or really anywhere these days, uh, it's like the gender of a child or, or any kind of gender reveal, they call mm-hmm. it. Um, I recall maybe noting about uh, a year ago uh, or so that 25 years ago, I told a tale where uh, in the mid-90s, um, there was an athlete I noted, according to him, who defeated a day earlier a worthy opponent in $10,000 a whole round of golf. Mm-hmm. And I will now disclose that my golf playing round partner that day was Lawrence Taylor. And okay. his alleged victim, another North Carolina alumni, was Michael Jordan. Uh, go Tar Heels, I guess. <laughs> so um, uh, I think Jordan, when he revealed in, the, in that uh, series, was that he bets on himself. And uh, I believed that, you know, I mean, he admitted to gambling and I know he gambles sort of firsthand. So uh, I believe that um, that said, I would still be very wary, even on DraftKings of uh, a virtual call of awakening and e-hornet's nest uh, over at FanDuel. I kind of <laughs> laid low. Right. OK, yeah. I, what, what a statement this is about the way that perceptions of gambling have changed, mm. you know, 25, 30 years ago. Uh, Jordan's interest in gambling was it, maybe it wasn't all in the shadows, but at the very least, the powers that be tried to keep it in the shadows. And now here he is partnered and announced in a formal press release uh, with a, a sports book and online casino, which I, I think that that says that the stigma around sports gambling, I won't say it's gone, but it's receded enough that it isn't scaring anyone away from making a big deal anymore. I mean, you know, Michael Jordan from being asked by Ahmad Rashad in a uh, sort of a, a condescending type way, if he has a gambling problem to sports betting brand ambassador, essentially. Now we, we we've come a long way, baby. Yeah, exactly. Jordan is the guy, of course, who didn't get involved in, you know, in politics and anything else. So he, he's not the guy who's like a, a brand leader or a iconic figure in a movement. He's just a guy who is great at, what he does and yet now he's in the gambling so it's almost like he's so um mellow that when he gets into gambling then it's like it's not a big deal because he's not a uh, trailblazer in a lot of ways right so well <laughs> right he could have been a trailblazer but that's, <laughs> that's like a back to the nba draft and i knew sam bowie he's a great guy and actually i know him well but anyway yeah, yeah i get i right the two trailblazers you think of as it pertains <laughs> to jordan are bowie or and then clyde drexler who he yes, kind of yeah. uh, destroyed um but so yeah, yeah and, and and that gets me thinking about you know if FanDuel wanted to sort of counter with somebody uh <laughs> you, you, you can't go with drexler or barkley or any of those guys who lost to jordan i think there's only one one name 
that could make as big a splash uh, partnering up with FanDuel, and it's not a basketball player. It's Pete Rose. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> a future guest on our part, maybe. I don't know. But, Hopefully, uh, yeah. Well, Sam Bowie, uh, I'll tell you about him. Uh, sure. He, he had a degree from the University, University of Kentucky and uh, in communications, and he's the only athlete out of 1,000 or more I covered when he would speak and you have a, a notebook out, not not a uh, tape recorder, mm-hmm. he would slow down his speech to make sure that you could get his words down exactly ah. right on the pad. That, I mean, that's a brilliant guy. First of all, any NBA player who has a degree in anything is impressive because why bother? You don't need it, right. um, which he did. But that was, that was also like a gentlemanly thing, I thought, that you know he wanted to make sure that he was trying to help you do your job right. So he wasn't Michael Jordan, but he was a good guy. Yeah, that's a, that's a great little detail. And that's uh, as a writer myself who has interviewed many people and used to do it back in the days before it was easy to record everything. Uh, that, that, that is something I appreciate. And <laughs> yeah. and and my my counter story would then be uh, the, the great Larry Merchant, former uh, Philadelphia and yeah. New York uh, newspaper uh, guy turned HBO boxing broadcaster, who was one of my favorite interviews for that very reason. He spoke so slowly that I could actually keep up with what he was was saying <laughs> but it wasn't I don't think it was a courtesy thing with him that was just his uh, his his form okay. of delivery he was he liked to think and be deliberate and it came out slowly but to know that about Sam Bowie that's that's pretty cool yeah he's a good man all right uh well many tangents there but uh let's get back to uh the main topic and thank everybody for joining us for episode number 107 of gamble on if you missed any of our previous 106 episodes including last week's special best of the gamble on interview edition they're all available on soundcloud apple Podcasts, and spotify please subscribe rate and review and Eric, coming up a little later on the show, we're going to be joined by TVG horse racing broadcaster Mike Joyce. He's going to break down the odds and options for Saturday's Kentucky Derby and let us know uh, what to expect with the race taking. Yes, four months later than usual. Uh, <laughs> it's so weird. But yeah. a 2020, what, what are we going to do? <laughs> so, uh, but first, after taking a week off, we have two weeks of news in the world of gambling to analyze. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. In the extremely competitive U.S. sports betting marketplace, it has become almost imperative for sports books to partner with broadcast networks, especially if you're not one of the two current leaders, DraftKings or FanDuel. The Stars Group partnered with Fox to form FoxBet. Caesars is partnered with ESPN and, by extension, ABC. William Hill is partnered with CBS. And last Thursday, PointsBet made a big leap into the conversation when NBC Universal bought a 4.99% stake in the Australian sports betting company. PointsBet USA CEO Johnny Aitken told our colleague Matt Rybaltowski at Sports Handle, quote, no one has a better brand than the Peacock and NBC Sports. To have a true association with them will be extremely powerful. The deal is reportedly valued at $500 million, and NBC will have the option after five years of increasing its stake to 25%. Said Roundhill Investment CEO and co-founder Will Hershey, I think this further legitimizes PointsBet's presence in the U.S. market. Right now, they're a small player, but that could change quickly. We may soon be talking about them in the same breath as DraftKings and FanDuel. Uh, Now, we know NBC has been more proactive than any other major network in terms of building live broadcasts around betting odds. So now we expect those broadcasts will specifically be built around points bets odds. Uh, So simply put, John, is this deal as impactful as Aitken and Hershey say it is? 
Yeah, I mean, merger, merger fatigue is a real thing, even for us analysts, I mean, clearly. Yep. But I agree with the concept of points bet. I mean, these, these plucky Australians uh, seemingly get a last place to the U.S. Thanksgiving dinner table. They, they're right there. You know, not the kids' table. They're at the main table now. And um, it doesn't guarantee them a turkey leg, but um, – and I'll apologize for missing both the Labor Day and Halloween straight line there. Um, <laughs> now, this this to me is the biggest of the deals. The other ones were more kind of expected, you know, power versus power kind of thing. And this one is like a little plucky guy going up and, and you know, punching above his weight mm. and hitting on the home run. Well, there's another metaphor. <laughs> um, no, it's, I'm impressed, though. I really am. This is a big one, I think. Well, as long as you brought up home runs and brought it into baseball, uh, I, I was watching the Phillies postgame show on NBC Sports Philadelphia last night, and sure enough, they were using points bet odds, which is particularly interesting because points bet isn't in Pennsylvania. Uh, and I do I do realize that some of the NBC Philly audience is located in New Jersey, but still it got me wondering if points bet is going to be more likely to come to my state soon because of this NBC deal. Although I'm not sure which casino they'd partner with. They're pretty much all spoken for at this point. Uh, and points bet execs did say back in 2018 that they found the cost of entry in Pennsylvania prohibitive. Uh, but th- that's getting a little off track and focusing too much on a single state here when really it's the big picture we're talking about. Um, you're right that it is a, a, a huge development to have the plucky underdog partner up with, uh, with with big NBC like this. That said, I would think based on the Fox network push not turning Foxbet into a real peer of DraftKings and FanDuel, that it might be a reach to live up to that Will Hershey quote of believing this will put points bet in the same breath as the two DFS giants. More likely this deal puts them in the running to be number three, which I would think uh, would, would be considered a victory for them. Well, number three would be huge in the U.S. for sure. I mean, that's uh, uh, that would be a victory for them and victory for anybody. I mean, the market is enormous. And, yeah, we've, we've uh, credited uh, DraftKings and FanDuel for their, you know, uh, foresight uh, for the last three years and deservedly so but even if they only can be number three number three is a huge number for them yeah 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 and sort sort of a side note but i wonder whether nbc will help to promote the actual points betting approach you know uh, we've talked about it on the podcast many times it's more of a swingy high risk high reward form of sports gambling it's something that really differentiates points bet from the competition. But I wonder whether NBC is likely to go down that complicated road on broadcast. I suspect they'll mostly stick to old fashioned money lines and spreads and player props and things like that. Uh, I'm not NBC is pretty aggressive. I'm, I, I, that's an interesting point you make. I, I would not be shocked if they went for that to say, you know, uh, in there. And again, you know, my, you know, two-year-old concept now is uh, you have you have two networks uh, so one right. is the the broadcast and one is the betting broadcast the mm-hmm. betting broadcast that i can totally see where that's what you're doing you're sitting there and they're saying hey you can get you know x number on uh, these long odds or you know you can make a ton of money if this happens right. you know your team is down 15 points but you think they can win the game or even they can win by 40 if they're if you're on the other team uh, I can see them doing that. NBC is pretty aggressive, so I, I wouldn't rule it out. And it may not be a coincidence they took points bet of all people. Yeah, you you might be right. As I think about it, you know, they're say they're covering the uh, one of one of those Nuggets Jazz games, and Jamal Murray is going off yeah. for fifty points, and his line was twenty seven and a half or something. Yeah. Uh, you you might have uh, the the broadcast talking about it in terms of you could have won twenty two times your bet exactly. if you'd taken the over. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, All right. Uh, Moving on. We talked about uh, DraftKings in regard to Michael Jordan at the top of the show. We mentioned them again there uh, in our first news item. And now DraftKings takes center stage in our second news story about the latest goings on in Illinois. There are several stories to cover here, but the most sensational, clearly, is DraftKings CEO and co-founder Jason Robbins posting a tweet last Monday morning that called the folks at Rush Street Gaming, owners of the Rivers brand, quote, corrupt idiots, only to delete the tweet about two hours later. Uh, Mm. Rush Street fired back with a similarly harsh but more carefully worded statement when (laughs) Sports Handle's Jill Dorson asked them for comment. They said, Rush Street has never been asked to leave a state, pays taxes on every wager, and has not been named in multiple consumer class action suits. Uh, We've covered this uh, Illinois situation in the past, but to sum it up in a single sentence, the conflict is over. Rush Street lobbying to delay DraftKings and FanDuel's launches in Illinois. Uh, on three related notes, remote registration is back in the state, at least temporarily, uh, meaning people don't have to go to East St. Louis to start a DraftKings account, much to the delight of Robbins. Uh, <laughs> DraftKings announced a partnership with the Chicago Cubs on Thursday morning, which comes with plans to build a physical sports book right outside Wrigley Field. And FanDuel has now launched in the state as well. They went live last Friday, uh, again, with remote registration available. So there are now three mobile sports books in Illinois, and uh, Bet Rivers did not get the big advantage that it hoped for. Uh, Points Bet and William Hill, by the way, are both expected to be available in the state soon. Uh, John, what are your thoughts on Robbins's short-lived tweet? I know you generally subscribe to the theory that no good comes of getting emotional on social media. Uh, and uh, any other insights on the state of sports betting in Illinois? Well, yeah, a sports book near Rigby Field. I mean, I started going, my, my pilgrimage is to uh, that uh, sanctuary uh started in 1986 and if there was a sports book uh, down the road yeah uh that would have probably been a a visit before the game every time so that's Mm -hmm. like a big deal to me but um i think you're right you know i almost always reject the idea of fanning flames on social media and many of my at bergen brennan twitter followers by the way seem to appreciate that um but in this isolated instance uh, the pot was basically overdue to boil in terms of Illinois and its competition and lack of competition. And so, you know, I mean, neither the smack nor the reply was my personal style, but us grown-ups in the industry, you know, we're not shocked. It, it is what it is. So I, I, I think it uh, is not going to be long lasting it, and it kind of had to happen. Everybody knew how everybody felt. And so it happened. I mean, again, I, I wouldn't have recommended it, but uh, it's going to, it's going to not, not going to last long. Right. I mean, I would say it's already kind of gone. I mean, it yeah. certainly wasn't wise of Robbins to tweet out the corrupt idiots thing, but, uh, you know, he didn't get canceled over it or anything like that. It seems oh, it seems not to have caused major waves. He took down the tweet, which I guess was, uh, you know, that that was smart, at least. But, you know, of course, thanks to screenshots, uh, even bad <laughs> tweets live forever. Um, but th- this has been a fascinating political war in Illinois building yeah. up to this. But I guess it's mostly over now. Now it's sort of giving way to just the same marketing war that's going on in other sports betting states. And look, nobody outspends DraftKings and FanDuel. Nobody has their built-in customer base. Rush Street gave it their best shot, but it sure looks like we're headed for another state where it's DraftKings, FanDuel, and everybody else. Uh, But that's okay. You know, there's room for many sports books to all be profitable, and it's good for consumers to have options. And I suspect after this bumpy start, 
Illinois mobile sports betting will soon be showing huge handle numbers and will be on that predicted path toward becoming one of the biggest, if not the biggest, sports betting state. Right, although I'm not taking my attention away from Illinois until uh, I see where the in-city casino is built, that to me, or more than one, if not if possible. That's right. amazing. I mean, it's a great, obviously a great sports state, um, huge numbers possible. Anything inside the city limits would be astounding. And it would actually, you know, make uh, probably New York City, maybe even Los Angeles, uh, take note and say, oh, geez, there's, I didn't realize how much money is possible there. So, yeah. uh, and, and those cities are not really anywhere near it yet. But I think so. I, that's what I'm looking for in, in Illinois and really in Chicago. Yeah, no, good point. That's a, a major uh, story to keep an eye on. Uh, all right. Our final story this episode covers another feisty feud between gambling operators, this time centered on Atlantic City. Borgata has filed a lawsuit against Ocean Casino Resort, accusing them of raiding Borgata's casino marketing department mainly through two hirings that Borgata alleges violate their non-compete clauses, though Borgata says Ocean poached four additional executives. There are various other details, including allegations of an unreturned cell phone full of Borgata's trade secrets. Uh, but since you wrote the story for NJ Online Gambling, I'll let you go in-depth on, on the key matters here, John. So what details are important to know about this case? And do you sense, John, that Ocean is in real trouble here? Well, you know, Eric, I'm not a lawyer. And by the way, I object to the social media I-A-N-A-L depiction of I am not a lawyer. I don't really like the look of that. But um, I'm uh, I, don't, by... I don't think I've even seen that, uh, that yeah, abbreviation. No, it's or, or I saw it and I didn't know what it meant and I glazed yeah, right I over it. I am not a lawyer. <laughs> okay. But, yeah, that's not how I'd go. But um, I'm fascinated by the combination of a, a kind of – it's like a middle-class fantasy, really. Um, that is, you know, one rival executive is said to – oversee $1.5 to $4 million per visit to Borgata by these whales, these, these large players. Mm -hmm. um, and they're collectively responsible for about $25 million in revenue to Borgata per year. So it's just a handful of people. But imagine going to the casino for the weekend and you blow a million dollars or more. Right. Uh, that's amazing to me. Uh, as far as the technical details, um, there are definitely um, employment contracts here. Um, there are restrictions on, you know, who you can go to, non-competitive clauses, all that. I don't think it looks great for Ocean, but uh, again, I A N A L. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, th th this is my favorite part of the legal filing, as spelled out in your article. Uh, I'll quote directly from it. Uh, and in a transparent ruse to circumvent his non-competition obligations, Ocean <laughs> gave the career casino marketing executive the title of SVP of Hotel Operations, despite the fact that during his 18 years of work at Borgata, he had never overseen hotel operations never overseen housekeeping, never overseen front desk, bell desk, or janitorial services, all of which are core hotel functions. So uh, yeah, it's all it's all pretty brazen uh, what, what Ocean is, uh, tried to get away with here. The fact that Ocean is going to these lengths, whatever ends up happening with the lawsuit, the fact that they're that they were poaching these guys, or uh, I don't know, I don't know if that's I A N A L also. So I don't know if I can be using the word <laughs> poaching safely there. But whatever they're yeah. doing, going to these lengths yeah. is interesting. It says to me they're not quietly settling for being a middle of the pack casino hotel. They yes. believe they can overtake Borgata, which I don't know seems like a huge reach to me, but. 
they must have thrown a lot of money at these executives because why else, if you're one of these executives, would you jump off a solid ship like Borgata and aboard one that has sunken spectacularly before in Ocean back when it was Revel? Um, so to me, I care less about the outcome of the suit and more about what this all says about Ocean trying to legitimately compete with Borgata, something nobody in Atlantic City has really been able to do the past 15 years. Well, yeah. One of my favorite parts, too, is that Borgata went out of their way in the lawsuit to stress that this is not some nobody. This is the real competition we have for the, for the biggest players in, in New Jersey. Um, we worry most about Ocean. So mm-hmm. they're not just some small little upstart that is trying to you know snag a player here and there. They're going right after our core audience. And um, like you say, I, that may be suicide. Who knows? But uh, it's impressive to me. And, and uh, the one weird thing about Ocean Casino, which was Revel, if anybody remembers it, right. uh, born 2012, died 2014. <laughs> yeah. It's that building re- retooled is that it's enormous. And that was considered a real liability for a while that it's so big, you know, on the end of the boardwalk and uh, too much space and all. And now with these COVID uh, limits, they have a lot of room. They, they can true. have more. They have they can have more uh gamblers inside their building than the others because they're so enormous so um yeah i I agree with you that the most important thing about this entire lawsuit is that you have anybody taking on borgata i mean i was there in july 4th weekend of 2003 when borgata opened and i would have never dreamed in 17 years that anybody would go after the king and uh you know so you best not miss and we'll see if we'll see if they miss on this lawsuit. <laughs> right. Really interesting point about the space. I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right. Um, and I, I know you're not a lawyer, but I do have one quick question that maybe you can answer for me. Why was this suit filed in a Nevada court instead of a New Jersey court? Do you have any idea why why it went down that way or is it kind of irrelevant or? Uh, well, Borgata is definitely um uh, MGM Nevada based. Okay. And, uh, it, it's, it's probably both of them are. Yeah. I don't, I don't okay. think it really it's like a, a more of a, a parent company sort of thing. Or yeah. Whatever. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Use, useless question, but I was just curious. So, uh, all right, we can move on. now. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the gamble on interview. I think this is a first, us having the same guest on twice inside of three months, uh, but we enjoyed talking horse racing with this guest so much before the Belmont Stakes that we had to have him back on to talk about the Kentucky Derby. Mike Joyce is a host, analyst, and reporter for the International Horse Racing Network, TVG, and he joins us again now. Mike, welcome back to Gamble On. You're well, thank you for having me. So back in June, you speculated on a couple of possible long shots, but ultimately told us that Tis the Law was a big favorite for a reason. And indeed, he won the Belmont by three and three quarter lengths. Now in the bigger derby field, Tis the Law is a clear favorite. I'm seeing three to five, four to five, making him the shortest derby favorite in decades. Although that has something to do with him being the first horse to enter the derby, already having won the Belmont. In any case, Mike, is Tis the Law a good bet at those odds? No, no, no horse is a good bet at those odds. Um, but that's the beauty of horse racing. You have to get creative with how you try to maximize your return. I do think the conversation about Tis the Law, when all is said and done, I think right now he's every bit as good as American Pharaoh, as Justify, as California Chrome, as any of these super horses we've seen run through the three-year-old ranks in the last decade. Um, he's that good. And 
after the Belmont, who franked that form with a brilliant performance in the Travers. Uh, I mean, the final time of that race was two minutes and four fifths, and he did it. You know, Manny Franco was water skiing. I mean, it was just it was such a sensational victory. So you look at the total package, what he brings to this race. There are some ways to look at it where you could, you know, posit the theory. Yeah, you know, on numbers, I actually have one horse that ran a faster number last time out on thoroughbred sheets. On buyers, a couple of horses fit. You can you can do all that, but the eye test, he's just something else. He, he's fantastic. So, no, he's not a good bet at those short odds, but I don't think anybody's a good bet at those short odds. Is he your most likely winner? Yes, and I do think we're going to be having a horse go for the Triple Crown come Preakness in uh, October. One one quick follow-up is that I see he's drawn post position 17, and there's never been a derby winner from that position. Are you at all superstitious about those sort of things? Well, I think the post 17 isn't so much the superstition. It's that it's so far out there, and that usually in other years is the first gate in the auxiliary gate, the first stall in the auxiliary gate. So they would have um, 16 stalls and then four more on the outside. Now they have just one big 20 horse gate that they can use so i don't know if that really makes that much of a difference i think the the problem is it's so far out there but with him it doesn't make a difference um yeah. there are some horses that they could be compromised but they start all the way down you know they have the entire length of the stretch to get position going into the turn it's just in every other year if you're drawing 17 18 19 20 you've got you know 16 horses to your inside that you have to contend with to find a position to find a trip and it can be tricky to do so but in a 20 horse field it's tricky for anybody to do so so um I don't think that's going to make a difference. Uh, I think he's that much better. And then the horse, you know, there's only a, a handful of horses in this race that are as fast as him. He's just, he's, I mean, he's, he's like a sports car. You can drive him how you want. I mean, if you want the lead, you can get it. And if you don't, you can just kind of hang back and he can pick his own trip. Yeah. I, I'm thinking uh, there's no way I'm going to take Tizzle. I, I would not bet enough money to make it worth my while, but uh, you know, if you go back a few decades and s- for some reason, the Kentucky Derby was held in September, you'd have a, a decent amount of information on a lot of horses that have raced at any number of times, you know, before September. Uh, but these days thoroughbreds race so rarely that, you know, uh, Kentucky Derby time, you often have a couple of them only run a couple of times and it's a little tricky. Is there much benefit? Do we really know much more about any of the other horses uh, because it's uh, after the Belmont and after a couple other big races, or are we still kind of flying blind on a lot of them? Well, I, I think it's because of the reasons you just laid out it. It's somewhat of a better race. I know we lost Nadal and I know we lost Charlatan. They're, you know, both out of training. Nadal may never come back in a training. It looks like he's going to be retired to stud because of the severity of the injury he, sh- he suffered. But um, so so the, you lost a couple of big horses that technically makes it weaker. But at this point in the year, I think most jockeys and trainers will say three-year-olds, this is where they can start competing with older horses. We're really close to, you know, by the time the Breeders' Cup comes around, three-year-olds have a pretty fair, you know, a fairly decent record in the classic because they've, they've matured almost to the point of, you know, you know, total physical maturity. So I think you have more polished products in this derby than you would in May. Um, you know, the known commodities that we do ha- have out there. I mean, I think we know how good Honor AP is. I know he's only made five starts, but um, we we have a much better version of Honor AP than we did the first Saturday in May. Uh, I think authentic, we have a much better horse now than we would have the first Saturday in May. Um, I think there's a couple of horses that we wouldn't even have seen the first Saturday in May. Money moves for Todd Fletcher, who I think is potentially the most interesting horse in here, not named Tis the Law, because he's only got three starts under his belt. And Todd Fletcher doesn't run for the fun of it. He runs to win. And there are questions with only having a handful of starts and not having been tried at the distance that the trainer and the connections kind of mitigate, right? 
you wonder, oh, well, he's going to get the distance. Yeah, he's by candy right. He's going to get a mile and a quarter, no problem. Oh, but can he get the distance off of only a mile and an eighth? Is he going to be fit enough? Nobody brings their horses ready to race better than Todd Fletcher. His horses are the fittest in the world. Um, oh, is he going like, – I mean, all of these questions you would have about him are mitigated by that. So he's really the wild card because we, we don't know what his best is. But I think everybody else, you have these, these polished, you know, racehorses. You have, you know, the Kentucky Derby, you know, three-year-old racing and derbies are, you know, akin to the NCAA tournament, right? Like that's – you've got all this potential, but you don't have the finished product yet. We're much closer to those finished products with here. So in that respect, I think it, it makes the derby a little more intriguing. We have a, a greater quantification of what we're dealing with. And that, in part, is why Tis the Law – is such a short price compared to other derbies because some of that unknown has been taken out of it. You mentioned that uh, you think there's a, a good chance we'll uh, be coming into the, the Preakness with a, a horse vying for the Triple Crown. For the casual horse racing fan like me, a horse going for the Triple Crown is, is a big attraction. In terms of both fan interest and betting handle, how big a boost does it provide to have the same horse win the first two legs and be vying for that full Triple Crown win? Well, it changes the whole industry, really. Um, I'm a fan of horse racing, so I think being a Belmont winner is pretty special in its own right. I don't think you need to be going for the Triple Crown to do so. But when there's a horse that's won the first two legs in every year going into the Belmont, it's, it's national news versus horse racing news, right? Mm -hmm. So when there's a Triple Crown on the line, everybody's paying attention. When there's not, horse racing's paying attention. So right. I think that's, that's the big difference. And you get a lot more – I mean – I only, I work for a company. We really only measure success by handle. I don't think we've ever had ratings. I don't, I don't know what my, I don't know what my Q rating is. Sorry guys. Um, <laughs> but I do know when we have good weekends, it's because more people are betting right. and the two obviously go hand in hand. The more people you have, the more, the more money will be at bet. So um, yeah, it, it makes all the difference in the world. And I, I think especially this year, um, we really kind of need that. I will say this though, for the Preakness. Even if Tis the Law doesn't win the Derby, the added intrigue for the Preakness, I don't know that this has anywhere near the crossover that a Triple Crown would have. But there is that added intrigue in the Preakness for horse racing fans that it serves as a really nice prep for three-year-olds going into the Breeders' Cup. I mean, it's going to be that same weekend as all the Breeders' Cup winning your own prep races at Keeneland and Santa Anita. So that Preakness, you could get some of these three-year-olds who really want to take that crack in the Classic trying to buy their way in. And you could, and maybe that's where we see a money move step up and get a victory, something like that. So it will have added intrigue where it is in the counter. But, you know, the, the difference between a triple crown on the line and not is night and day. Right. Right, well, there's one other uh, uniqueness here. Let's say Tislaw does win uh, the, the Derby and is going for Triple Crown. Um, you know, being from the Northeast, I'm kind of a, a seasonal uh, sports fan where March is spring training and March madness, and then April baseball gets started, and then by the end of the month, the basketball and hockey playoffs get going, and then um, – the Masters is early April, and then in, in early May, you get the run for the Roses. So I, I kind of feel like it's in my, you know, my seasonal clock to, to enjoy the Derby. And now it's in, not in September, but it's competing against um, uh, NBA, NHL, you know, far into the playoffs. Baseball stretch run. I mean, there's so much else going on. I mean, is, is this going to be difficult for the Derby to get the attention it normally does, uh, whether it's handle or ratings, as you say, even assuming that uh, Tizzle wins. So it's a triple crown year like many other years. Well, I, I, I don't know the short answer, but I will say this. Um, I do think that what I've seen with basketball ratings is that the hardcore N NBA fans are really kind of loving the whole bubble experience 
but it it hasn't really gotten the uptick with being the only show in town outside of baseball this summer that we thought. Um, I'm happy that we're getting in before the NFL starts. That's one right. good thing because that's a juggernaut yeah. that we've never wanted to be have to deal with. Um, and there's no college football either, so that's another you know another vacancy there on the sports calendar. I I think the Kentucky Derby is as important um, a sporting event as there is. That I think it'll it'll be just fine going against the final push of baseball with the NHL playoffs and the NBA playoffs in full swing. Because the good thing about the NHL playoffs and NBA playoffs for for horse racing is that the Kentucky Derby is two minutes. Those games, I mean, any single playoff game can be a throwout game, right? Because they're best of seven series. So there's not the the onus on having to watch in that moment in time like there is on the Derby. Uh, and baseball fans are like racing fans. They're just junkies for the sport. They're going to watch no matter what. So you're going to get some of them coming over, and you're going to get the ones who are going to watch baseball instead of the Derby are going to watch baseball instead of the Derby on, on May 4th versus September 5th. All right. Great stuff. Great, great talking to you again, Mike. We really appreciate you uh, coming on the show again. To all our listeners, I'll note that you can follow Mike on Twitter at TVG Mike. And uh, I guess, is it too early to pencil you in for another gamble on appearance in four weeks before the Preakness? It is not too early. I would be happy to do it. <laughs> all right. Thanks again, Mike. We really appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. Our last bets were placed two weeks ago, uh, and each of us went about break-even. Uh, John, you actually went exactly break-even. You <laughs> lost $100 across two $50 bets on Tony Finau. You had him one week too early for yeah. top five and top ten. Uh, but you won $100 on the Lakers covering as six-and-a-half-point favorites in game two against the Blazers. Meanwhile, I split my two boxing underdog bets, uh, losing $50 on Delphine Pursuin at plus 290 when she lost a close decision, but winning $150 on Alexander Povetkin at plus 300 when he scored a one-punch come-from-behind knockout. Unfortunately, I was a victim of our podcast schedule in betting on the Nikola Jokic points over. I did well with that bet in real life as it hit in five of seven games versus Utah, but the one I bet for the podcast was a loser as the Nuggets trailed by 30 points in the third quarter and Jokic got pulled while on pace to make it a close sweat. Uh, so that lost us $104 and made us a collective minus four bucks for the week. Uh, however, we also had one of my ill-advised futures bets conclude. Uh, I bet $100 on the 76ers to win the Eastern Conference way back at the start of the season, and that didn't go so well. Uh, so we lost $104 in total. We're now up by $116. We have $600 on hold in futures bets. That leaves us with $9,516 available to bet with, and I'm up first, and I want to make an NBA series bet, and my initial plan was to do something I did successfully in real life in round one, a Lakers-Clippers series win parlay. I like both of their matchups. I think the cream will rise in Clippers-Nuggets yeah. and Lakers-Rockets. Uh, but there are two problems. One, as of this recording, I haven't been able to find many sports books with Lakers-Rockets series lines posted yet. And two, the Clippers line is wider than I expected it to be. They're between minus 1,000 and minus 1,500. So the parlay price isn't doing it for me. So instead... Uh, I was surprised to find Thursday morning that the Miami Heat 
holding a 2-0 lead over the Milwaukee Bucks are a mere minus 142 to win that series at FanDuel. Uh, at other sports books, it's between minus 160, minus 175, and those aren't bad prices either, but minus 142. I can't pass that up. Uh, you'll recall that I made a futures bet on the Raptors to win the Eastern Conference before the playoffs began, and uh, that's not looking too hot right now. Um, but my instincts on that might prove to be half right. Uh, the bet was based on believing in Toronto, uh, possible mistake there, but it was also based on feeling the Bucks were vulnerable and a little overrated. Uh, I, I guess I made the worst choice among the other contenders uh, for who would who it would be instead of the Bucks to win the mm. East, but uh, hoping to make up for that. I think Miami is proving to be a tough matchup for Milwaukee. They're about even money on a game-by-game basis, in my mind, uh, and they need to lose four out of five from here. I think minus 142 is a great price for that. So let's bet $142 to win 100 on the Heat advancing. Yeah, I'm intrigued by that. And I wish, uh, and there's hardly any media there, but uh, getting kind of a, a pulse of the Milwaukee team uh, mm-hmm. because they've been in the bubble for you know a month or whatever, several weeks anyway. Right. And how how badly do they want this? I mean, it's weird because, of course, they want it desperately, but do they? I don't know. And so they get behind in game three. Are they, you know, I don't I don't know. So I, I kind of like that pick um, just because of that. I can't blame any of these human beings uh, who are trailing in series to just right. feel like, you know what? I, I, I can't take it anymore. I, I, I can be home. They don't want to lose. They're never going to lose. Never think that anybody quits. They don't quit. Right. But. The, you know, they don't have 110 percent. They've got 95 percent. And maybe that's not enough against the Heat, which is a really great team, obviously. So uh, I'm intrigued by that. And I'm, I'm keeping an eye on it for all series. I'm noticing that uh, in hockey, yeah, not so much. <laughs> three right. down, three one. Not <laughs> not happening. But that's right. hockey. That's it is what it is. I covered both the NBA and the NHL for many years. So I know the difference. And NHL guys are are not alike. But that said, my pick, um, I caught a piece of the stretch run of the Avalanche's Game 6 win to tie it up against our Dallas Stars right. to win the West. And um, my experience th- from this all is that I, I kind of question Colorado and their goalie. Uh, I'm going to sort of double down with the Stars for us at 100 to win 118 in Game 7. without a dime's worth of difference between the team, so that's an advantage for, for us, I think. Okay, so taking the stars outright to win game seven. Okay, Um, for my second bet, uh, I'll also go with hockey. Uh, You know, I'm an expert now because I've been watching the (laughs) NHL for a month after taking about 15 years off. It's good. Yeah, Yeah. no, it's fun. Uh, You barely notice the lack of a crowd uh, there. So um, I'm going to stay away from my flyers against the Islanders. Uh, Instead, I'll go with the other Thursday night game. I expect Vegas to close out the Canucks tonight. They've let Vancouver hang around. It feels like tonight is the night they clamp down. I could go minus 225 on the money line, but I think the better price is plus 120 on the puck line, meaning Vegas needs to win by two or more. As any hockey fan or hockey better knows, you can win by two either by actually leading by two or by scoring an empty netter in what is effectively a one-goal game. Uh, In this series, Vegas's three wins so far have all been wins in which they covered the puck line as well, 5-0, 3-0, and 5-3. So let's bet $100 to win 120. I think that's better than betting 225 to win 100 on the money line. If you've been watching hockey long enough, like I have, you know, back in the 1970s, you didn't pull a goalie until like exactly one minute left was like Mm -hmm. the number. And now somebody figured out, I'm sure correctly that, you know, you're sort of a, 
chances of win expectation at it is a little better if you pull the goalie sooner. But on betting, you're exactly right. That uh, gives you a better chance to get that second goal. So, yeah. uh, you know, you don't want the team. You're you're the the Knights and they're up one and they're sitting around and nothing's happening and the game's over and you now you got a free free shot at the empty net. So yeah. I like the idea. Uh, so my second pick. Um, back to a weird PJ golf week. Um, only 30 players left for the championship uh, uh, tournament this week. So the winner, the leader starts at 10 under par and then uh, eight, seven, six, five, four, the last five out of 30 started even par. So 10 shots behind the leader. So it's, it's kind of bizarre. Um, it's a trap for casual players for sure. You, you might see a, a name you like, you know, Oh, he's got a great chance. What am I? And it's not going to work because he's, <laughs> down seven shots at the one round. But um, that said, give me Justin Thomas, who's three back uh, at 100 to win 138. We're just a top three finish, which he can just maintain his his grade. He'll do that. Um, He's only half cycle off last week, really, at a decent uh, Sunday. Uh, He's now under the radar. So 100 to win 138. Justin Thomas, top three. Okay. Um, and, and a quick note uh, in terms of the bankroll, uh, that next week's show will be our chance to get in some NFL futures. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I've sort of been uh, stalling on, on thinking about those futures just because I wasn't yeah. sure, you know, would the season start on time and so forth. Yeah. It looks like it's gonna. So yeah. uh, we might have a longer bankroll segment uh, next sure. week. I uh, might want to do more than our usual two bets apiece. And, and here's a teaser for you, John. I'm considering the ultimate emotional hedge betting on the Dallas Cowboys. We'll see. I have a week, I have a week to sleep on the moral consequences of such an action, but I'm thinking about it. Well, I'm, my problem is that I had that ridiculous one, 57% or whatever number last last season, oh, and right. I have done no preparation whatsoever <laughs> for this year. Like, I, I don't know if that was a dumb luck or what, but it was a, a Cinderella story. And yeah, I should be, uh, yeah, I'll get on it the, right after this call. Right. Yes. Got to start thinking about it. So yeah, the, uh, a, a bigger bankroll segment next week and the return uh, of our little mini super contest. So, all right. Well, that will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks, everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Mike Joyce. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And with that, John, please take us out. Yeah, so uh, Tom Seaver, 1945 to 2020. Uh, you know, every wide-eyed young sports fan wishes for glory. Uh, imagine being a, a sports mad seven or eight-year-old like I was, rooting for Joe Namath's Jets, Tom Seaver's Mets, Willis Reed's Knicks. Hmm. And I was feeling like the world is your oyster, right? It, it tends to make a pretty good impression and makes you a bit of a cockeyed optimist the rest of your life, I, I tell you. The Knicks win again in 1973, and the, you got to believe Mets that year, making an impossible run to Game 7 of the World Series against the middle version of the Oakland A's, 1972-1974, three-peat. So life is still good and still simple. Uh, then, of course, life gets complicated when you're in your mid-teens, and uh, especially when a New York tabloid sports writer goes after Seaver's demand for a better contract to such an extent that he contributes to the Mets trading Seaver to Cincinnati in 1977. Uh, fast forward nine years, and the Mets reached a third World Series. So a college buddy of mine has a father who has access to such tickets. Um, his sister is not a baseball fan, uh, but she insists on going to games one, two, and six because it seemed like the thing to do, right? Everybody's talking about it. Uh, to my pal's chagrin, he was not, not thrilled <laughs> with, with her being there. Um, 
after the Mets win the epic game six, the Buck, Bill Buckner, we call it the Mookie Wilson game. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Game seven on Sunday has rained out. So my pal sister asks, you know, what do they, what do, they do now? It's rained out. And he says, well, they'll play on Monday, obviously. And, well, she's busy that night. So I get the ultimate phone call of any sports fan's life. Nice. Hey, I've got an extra ticket for game seven of the World <laughs> Series. Would you like to come? Yeah, I, I would like that. Yeah. So we have great seats in the low section behind home plate at Shea Stadium. You know, the result, of course, is glorious. I mean, incredible. I did never dreamed it would be the last one they have, but here it is. Um, the only thing that could have made it better would have been if Seaver, a 25-game winner in 1969, had been on hand for it, except he was. He was in a Boston Red Sox uniform in the visitor's dugout, even though he was injured and inactive. And uh, I should note that Seaver never threw another big league pitch, but he was there for this incredible moment. And I should add one other thing. Um, the insider who my college buddy's father knew was the very same sports writer who spearheaded the effort to send Seaver out of town on a rail. So funny how life works if you're lucky. And with that, until next time, gamble on, everybody. Everybody.